0: The last month has been pretty brutal for Abiné Clayton. She covers gun violence over at The Guardian. That means there's been no way to avoid shooting after shooting. Shootings at the hands of the police. Shootings at those Atlanta spas. At that Boulder grocery. At the Indianapolis FedEx facility.
1: It's tough. It's been really difficult to keep track. I have kind of a running tally in my mind. But in the past few weeks, it's all become, frankly, a bit
0: muddled and overwhelming. It's especially overwhelming because Abney has committed herself to keeping track of all kinds of gun deaths, not just the ones that make national headlines. When we got on the line, Abney casually mentioned four people who were killed in an office building in Orange County at the end of March. Then she told the story of a kid named Demetrius Fleming Davis, just 18 years old. He was killed by a stray bullet a couple of weeks back. So
1: Demetrius, I think he had actually just left picking up, like, some gardening supplies from Home Depot and was riding in a car in Oakland, and someone started
0: shooting, and he got hit, and he died. And he wasn't involved in an altercation. He was just... In a car, he
1: was just in a car, minding his business, preparing to go about the rest of his day, and someone took his life. And they may, that person may not even know what happened, but yeah, he was riding in a car and got killed. And I've seen a lot of community sadness and outrage over that one. And he was number, I think, maybe forty between 40th and 43rd, excuse me, homicide in Oakland this year.
0: That seems high.
1: It is high. Girl, is it? Sorry. Uh, (laughs)
0: It is high. It's terribly high, and it's been high. Demetrius sticks with Abenet for a lot of reasons. He reminds her of friends she grew up with. But there's something else, too. The fact that we know his name, one,
1: matters a lot. And there's been some community movement around it. You know, there was a vigil for him and people have been more outspoken about it. So we're going to talk about it more. It's interesting. You say we know his name. We do. We don't know most of their names. We do not know most of the names of people who are killed unless you're plugged into. um, I'm on a group on Facebook called Who Murdered My Child, and people will post the names of their loved ones who on a on a breaking news story, is just man shot on X block. Rarely do we get the name. Oof. Sometimes we'll go back and, you know, so-and-so has been identified as, as this person. But it's so rare.
0: By now, you can probably recite a list of names of gun violence victims. You've read stories in the paper about their families and their funerals. But Abene wants you to see that behind all the victims you know are so many victims you don't. She worries about that, about the way it warps our understanding of how to prevent the next shooting and the one after that.
1: There are so many lies that we tell ourselves about shootings. You know, there's still a lot of people who work under the assumption that gun violence just happens in certain places, that it's happenstance and like a byproduct of choosing to live in a bad neighborhood. Do you feel like
0: Americans are being lied to?
1: I. Don't think that they're getting the full picture. I think if you want to call it like a lie by omission, then that would be perhaps fair.
0: Today on the show, a better way, a more accurate way to have a national conversation about gun violence. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Abene says you can start to understand the full context of gun violence in the U.S. by just looking at the numbers. And when you do that, it's clear that the vast majority of gun deaths are going unreported on a national level. 2020 was a deadlier year for gun violence than 2019. But the reason many people felt like it was a kind of cooling off period was that the shootings that did happen were the kind that don't get a lot of attention, the result of what Abney refers to as community violence. These are the kinds of shootings that get covered by local news and no one else. Abenei is intimately familiar with how this form of gun violence takes shape. She saw it growing up in Richmond, California.
1: In my backyard, I pretty literally in my backyard is an apartment complex called the Manor. And the Manor would sometimes have beef with another apartment complex that was less than three minutes away called the Crescents. And, you know, those are kind of small beefs. And then there were ones that kind of expanded to a multi-block radius, you know, the south side versus the Versus North Richmond, that was such a big beef. And then Central Richmond. And in there, there could even be individual blocks. Like, you know, it's it's all so insular and can feel so random. But yeah, it'll be like, you know, across the street is a neighborhood called the 30s or the 40s. You don't go over there if you live on in like Easter Hill or something like that. Like, And I think that most, if not all neighborhoods kind of have... A similar type of way it's divvied up in that way, but yeah, I started becoming aware of that stuff. I mean, I don't, I couldn't have been, I couldn't have been younger than twelve, but probably was around ten or eleven. Was like, oh, what block do I live on? Oh, I'm P row. Okay, so that's when I'm gonna start. Th- you know what I'm saying? It's just like little stuff like that that you think is just like childish things, but like around thirteen to sixteen, if people start getting real. shot up. Yeah, people start getting shot. Like.
0: Like you you wrote an op-ed and and you pointed out that 2020 had more gun deaths than 2019, like 4,000 more of them. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't a major news cycle about, you know, a mass shooting because a lot of these shootings were at the community level, local, and Mm -hmm. probably like you're saying, reported in this anonymous way where it's impossible to say someone's name if you don't know their name. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Rarely do we get enough information to do anything meaningful. You know, it's hard and it takes. Well, I keep reiterating. That's why it takes being plugged in with folks. You know, I'm grateful to now have people will send me names and and phone numbers and sometimes send them without me having to ask because they know I do, um, you know, good and responsible work. But is it a trust issue?
0: Like, do you think about why these incidents don't get the kind of attention that they may merit? I don't think so. I don't think so,
1: because people want their loved ones' names out there. I don't think it's a matter um, of—I don't think it's all trust. There could be a bit, because there is this kind of propensity for some um, reporters, which is a fair question to ask, and I have to do it sometimes as well, to ask about any possible criminal background of someone who is deceased, which in most situations— I don't see as being necessary, but sometimes there are some reporters who kind of season on the sensationalism on it or will only tie it to the number increase in gun violence and won't actually just do a story about the person. You know what I'm saying? They want
0: an innocent person killed. Yeah,
1: I think that's 100 percent accurate. People want You know, they're not—people may feel uncomfortable mourning somebody who died in retaliatory gunfire. It might have been a shootout and someone loses their life. You know, that person has still lost their life and they can be written about. And you can write about the complications that come with their death. You can ask those questions, you know what I'm saying? But it's how you go about it.
0: I wonder if you think about community violence and you wonder a little bit if these incidents got more attention, whether it would be a double-edged sword— Because, you know, it's like you saw how former President Trump referred to violence in Chicago, talking about gang warfare and how how awful it was. And that's not the reality of what's happening on the ground. It's a racist perception of the reality. And that can happen, too, when you hear so many of these stories. I think the racist perception is the key, you
1: know, Um, if you want to talk about, you know, community violence and there are gangs and there are groups and there are people who have beef with each other, who deal with those beefs with guns. Talk to the community about what kind of trauma that is, you know, talk to the schools, perhaps, who have to deal with uh, children coming in and being traumatized. You know what I'm saying? Dig into what it is like and how it impacts young people to hear gun violence, to hear about people being killed, to see on the news folks who look exactly like them and are their age being gunned down in places that they frequent. Like, talk talk about it, you know, cuz it's interesting and there's so many stories so many stories of like resilience of people taking this issue on on their shoulders and their dollars solely to make it right, you know, and if you start to dig in in a um in a way that you want to learn and not uh parrot any negative stereotypes, then I think it could be helpful. But um, Hmm. saturating with more of the, like, gang warfare, democratic-run cities, burned to the ground with gun violence, we don't need any more of that. People Hmm. are going to do that regardless, and we just simply, is
0: not helpful. You also talk about how suicides are a major driver of gun violence, but they often don't get reported like that. You've alluded to the fact that some places you've worked, they just wouldn't report on suicide deaths. Can you talk about some of the reasons why you think this obfuscation happens? From my understanding, there's a worry that just
1: talking about someone committing suicide can spark something in someone who already has perhaps suicidal ideations, right? And like push them over the edge. And I think that with that worry is also an acknowledgement that we, a lot of people in news, are not equipped to talk about it in a productive way that that we're comfortable with. But at the same time, having it be so something that comes off as so like shameful to even talk about just really adds to a negative, to, to a stigma that already exists. And I think the fact that it's um, I think the numbers in certain places may have changed a bit, but mostly it's white men in rural places that are like middle age to boomer age, who are committing suicides, you know what I'm saying? And so few people know that. And I just think it's because it's something that is so hard to tackle that are that leads newsrooms to kind of hedge and think like, ooh, ooh, is this the time to talk about it? We don't want to start nothing,
0: you know, and and it's out of that caution that people stay silent. If we were able to reduce suicides and community violence, if we focused in on those issues in particular. Do we have any idea of, of like, the scope of what we could do? Like, what would it change about gun violence as a whole? Well, it would drop it
1: dramatically, you know. Two-thirds of gun violence is suicides. I think from the gun violence archive, I want to say there was, like, a little more than, like, 40,000, maybe 42,000 gun deaths with the overwhelming majority being suicides. And after that is incidents of community violence. So, I mean, that's it (laughs) you know what I'm saying for the most part like so if we were to address these two main drivers I mean the drop would just be so dramatic you know I don't think it would completely eliminate all gun violence but I think we would start to see such a steep decline that people would ask like what is going on because these are the two biggest ways that gun violence manifests itself With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Once you realize the majority of gun deaths are suicides and community violence, it makes painfully clear that our current approach to gun control is simply not designed to stop these kinds of incidents. For Abiné... Community violence requires community intervention. Growing up in Richmond, she saw the toll that shootings took on her peers. She says thinking about gun violence as a physical and mental health challenge would go a long way. Could be helpful, you know, to have real conversations about, like,
1: okay, someone was shot. You may come to school and not know why you can't pay attention. You may come to school and be irritated. You know, I felt that even in my—even in grad school, there was a shooting that happened right by my um, house. And I came to school the next day. And if I was in elementary school, they would have probably sent me to, like, uh, you know, the, the, the principal's office. Because I was angry that day, could not focus, hmm. did not want to talk to anybody. And in so many schools where there are— um, young black and brown kids, they see that as being defiant or disrespectful, you know? So I think there's a lot of education that can happen for both teachers and young people about the realities of gun violence and how it affects them. You know, when a young person is like, I can't sleep, I can't do this, I can't do that, and they think there's something wrong with them, if they already had that knowledge that like, hey, gun violence affects you physically and mentally, then maybe they'll have, you know, they'll be able to talk about it a little bit. They'll be able to express themselves more. But I don't think that's going to happen if we don't have these clear conversations
0: in school. What's interesting about your story where you talk about a shooting happened near your house, you had to go to school the next day, you were pissed off, totally normal reaction. You can see in that how if you didn't have the self-knowledge to understand where that anger was coming from, and if the adults around you didn't have the knowledge about what was going on in a kid's life, like let's say that happened to a littler kid, how You know, the natural reaction might be, as you said, go to the principal's office, kind of crack down on the kid. And it creates a cycle where kid feels cracked down on, kid maybe acts out again. And then maybe that kid somehow gets involved in the gun violence. That's exactly how it happens.
1: You know, you come to school, um, you got your hood on, you're mad, you don't want to talk, you don't want to do your work because you're stressed. You know, that's a stress response. You're sad. You're angry. You're confused. And that is how a lot of young people have their first kind of brushes with police. You know, sometimes they be like, ah, we got to keep an eye on this kid. Maybe we need to talk to juvenile probation about them. And then that just pushes them more and more into the margins. It makes it easier for those influences that are in the streets to, to kind of grab them, you know, because they've been pushed out. It sounds like you know this intimately. Well, I do. I saw it start to happen as soon as I was maybe like 12 in middle school. You know, that's when it starts to happen. I saw it happen to kids that were my age, my peers. You know, they start to get arrested because they come to school and who knows what happened to that child before they got up there. And now all of a sudden they're getting like referrals and kicked out and then they get arrested and then they just get sent to a continuation school and it just goes downhill from there. I see it happen all the time and it continues to happen.
0: A lot of Albanese reporting focuses on organizations that want to break this cycle, actually getting kids the resources they need from people they trust. Let's talk a little bit about what violence interrupters are. You reported on one anti-gun violence program in particular that seems to be working well in Stockton, California. Yeah. Can you tell me what you saw there?
1: So they reach out and target the people that are deemed the most dangerous, the most likely to be shooters who may have done some shooting in their past, and they... Go to them and offer them resources, you know, are very clear and tell them they cannot continue to live their life this way and try to teach them to to value themselves, you know, not necessarily going in there with the scared straight you're going to end up in prison and all this other kind of stuff. It's just going to them and teaching them that they have options. They have value. They can contribute to their community. They can live a full life. For some people, it's just like having food in the refrigerator, you know, and perhaps transportation to and from their job, whether it's like a bus stipend or something like that. And they target the very small population in a city that's responsible
0: for the most violence. Yeah, it sounds like they're just taking care of people. Yeah. In a lot of ways. (laughs) Yeah. And you reported that you know, once this group really got going, Stockton saw a twenty percent drop in gun homicides, and the city calculated that they saved forty-two million dollars from not having to respond to reports about gunshots and and people harming each other.
1: Yeah, and they did that on a nine hundred thousand on nine hundred thousand dollars. You know, hmm. saving in emergency costs and and
0: hospital stays and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. What's interesting is that when I read about this program, I thought this sounded really familiar. Like, I think a lot of people may have heard of the violence interrupters in Chicago. Yeah. But it seems like these programs have been going on for a really long time. And I can't tell how effective they've been because, for instance, I look at Chicago and the gun violence has gone up. And so I'm just, I am I guess I'm not sure what to make of it. And I'm wondering what you'd say.
1: I would say that um, the pandemic created some incredibly difficult circumstances for folks. And I actually did a story about the rise in gun violence, specifically in the Bay Area. And what I heard from so many violence interrupters and people who are dedicated to like youth development and that kind of stuff was that the loss of in-person interaction just took such a huge toll. It just interrupted and in some cases, ruined a lot of that. You have to, a main tenet of the violence prevention work is showing up consistently for young people who have been failed by every system they've come in contact with. So you couldn't do that. So if you
0: disappear, it's a problem. Yeah,
1: you disappear, even you know, even if you slightly disappear because everything has to be through text and Zoom, because if one violence interrupter you know, is out with COVID, that could be like 20% of a program's workforce. You know,
0: these places are small. So, um... But that gets into this other issue, which is, are they scalable? They seem so based on individual relationships and individual communities. And so I look at that and I think, oh, is that hard to replicate? No, I think that the Stockton... um,
1: story that I did really showed that it is incredibly scalable. This is something that started in Richmond, California, has uh, started also in Sacramento, where they saw similar returns. The Stockton one is showing a lot of promise. They're opening another branch in a city called Woodland that's very small, but is dealing with a lot of issues of gun violence in a very small pocket of the community. So if it's funded correctly and if people have the right training it can be replicated. Every city can have one that operates outside of law enforcement that may not even be housed within a municipality, but exists and is sustainably funded. It's so possible. And I, and that's something that I would love to see. And I think we have a growing body of evidence that proves you get the people who were the problem at one point, And once they transform, put them right back into the community so they can see their younger selves and the young folks they work with and give them what they needed when they were kids. It's,
0: It's it's so possible. You know, I noticed that President Biden, he's proposed investing in these kinds of solutions. Five billion dollars in his infrastructure package is earmarked for programs like this. You've mentioned how funding has been a challenge for these groups. So does this, are you hopeful? Um, I...
1: You know, I think I am. It's really easy to become cynical in this job because I've seen so many like nonprofits and X amount of grant money is supposed to go towards this. And then the majority goes toward like administrative costs. And it's like there's so much red tape for these small groups that no one actually gets much of the money in a meaningful way. But I will say when it comes to what's happening with um, the Biden-Harris administration, for me, it's been it's unprecedented for me to even see a president talk about the fact that the burden of gun violence in communities of color is something that needs to be addressed at the federal level. So I think that even starting that conversation has made, you know... People even want to talk to me about it. You know, I've been talking about this for the past couple of years, and now that it's kind of being discussed on this uh, national and federal scale, people are interested. They want to know what's going on. And I think that presents a really excellent opportunity just to do some of the, like, myth-busting and debunking that I try to do in, in my work. And I think that the $5 billion, if it is passed, would be incredible.
0: Abene, I'm so grateful for you joining me.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This was a really wonderful interview, Mary.
0: Abene Clayton is a reporter at The Guardian. And that is the show. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, Carmel Delshad, Davis Land, and Elena Schwartz. Alison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery oversee the lot of us. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.